0: politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the Ageless Wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner.
1: Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. My name is Michael Benner, and gosh, I really appreciate you joining us here today. Hopefully you make it a habit to be with us Tuesdays at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe you listen on the internet. We live stream at kpfk.org, podcast, even post to YouTube, but I think it's great when you can... Join us on the radio and sort of be part of the group mind here. Uh, another great guest for you today. I just want to quickly remind you we're in the final days of our June fund drive. And so if you've yet to make a contribution to KPFK, perhaps your annual contribution, or maybe it's time you join joined Sustainers Circle and uh, Annie up 15, 20 bucks a month for Radical community radio. There are other stations that claim to be public radio or community radio, but they seem to have no issue with corporate underwriting, and we do. (laughs) We always have had. So for 62 years, we've never taken money from corporations, and obviously we're ad-free, commercial-free, but that means that you're the sponsor. You are the sustainer so join us at kpfk.org. Just point your browser to kpfk.org, and you'll see support KPFK in the banner, and make your tax-deductible contribution there, and and we really appreciate it. I'll I'll talk more about this at the end of the show, but I'm anxious to introduce my guest. He's a, a friend of mine, a fellow I met through my wife, Doreen, actually. Many of you know Doreen. She had a program on this radio station about a decade ago called profiles and peace and uh gosh kevin what was it about 15 years ago that we first met uh, 20 i think yeah, yeah. it was um
2: <laughs> late 90s i believe
1: yeah i think so <laughs> it's hard to believe losing track of time this is kevin kerslake you probably know that name if not you will by the end of this show Uh, Kevin is a media guy, but like so many of us, he loves music as well as film, and I just thought we'd do a show today about music and media and about consciousness, and what is it that musicians are trying to do, many of them, most of them, besides having a good time on stage and doing what they love to do, and we could say that for filmmakers and photographers as well. But there is a a thread or a a current that runs through the performance of many of these media types, a contribution to the world, uh, an attempt to make a difference. And that's what we're all about here at KPFK. So um, I thought, wow, Kevin would be a great guest to talk about that. And so, Kevin, welcome to KPFK. It's great to have you on the air today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Now uh when I think you I think of uh, you've lived in various parts of the city, but I think you as a Venice guy for some reason. Tell us a little about the chronology of growing up in in this area and uh, uh, being by the beach and surfing and skateboarding and and sort of how that all led to your interest in video and eventually music so I grew up pretty much in the
2: heart of the city um went to school uh in the valley was best out there actually um every day and then um and, and i spent a lot of time my father was an athlete pro athlete actually at one point uh he played for the white Sox, and i was sort of following in his footsteps and played traditional sports but you know in the in in the sort of like the sweet spot of my youth uh, skateboarding sort of blasted back on the scene, and that um, you know I'd already been skiing for a bit, so I, I it sort of overtook I think all the traditional sports-minded dreams that I had, um, and and then I ended up actually moving to Mammoth right right at the in the beginning of junior high, and so being set in the outdoors. Um, you know, the the mountain is right outside our door. Basically, um, you know that that sort of turbocharged all those all those dreams. And my father, I moved up because of a divorce, and um, my father went to Malibu. So I was pretty much mountain and beach guy. <laughs> uh, you know, skateboarding was was you know that happened in both places, right? But um, and that was right. Uh, you know the, the the big ticket item in that world at that point was was uh, you know all the, the whole Dogtown scene blew up. So you know I was completely obsessed with skateboarder and everything they were doing in Venice and 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 uh, I didn't know those guys at that point, but but um, you know they were sort of my heroes. The posters on the wall, and so I right around the same time my my mom gave us kids a super eight camera and i hijacked that (laughs) and and then just started making super eight films of all the sports of all the things i was doing right so with friends the as the athletes you know the sort of stars of the film and they were just homegrown films you know they weren't they were never released or anything at that point but i'd edit them and you know it in my bedroom and um you know, I was pretty, pretty obsessed from, from junior high on with film and action sports. And, um, and how music basically fits into that is my grandfather was a composer. So we had music. You know, he wrote, a, he grew, cut his teeth on Tin Pan Alley and, and uh, ended up writing. He was writing for, Ir, he wrote a bunch of songs for Irving Berlin early on before breaking out in his own. But music filled our house you know throughout my youth and and those were obviously older songs but you know my obsession with 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 rock music especially um was was you know that was sort of in the dna <laughs> it's going to happen at one point so i think that you know when you're whenever you're making films
1: you obviously start thinking about soundtracks so I want, to, I want to go back to your granddad. I don't want to give him short shrift. This is a big deal. Your <laughs> your mother's father, right, was Walter Donaldson. Correct, yeah. Now, Walter Donaldson, my God, it's like this guy invented pop music in the, in the <laughs> Tin Pan Alley days. I mean, songs like uh, My Blue Heaven and uh, Carolina in the Morning, Riptide. My God, he wrote Riptide. Um, you're driving me crazy, Uh, yes, sir, that's my baby. (laughs) Uh, We know all these tunes, so it's decades and decades uh, ago. I'll see you in my dreams. What an incredible uh, melody, even how you're going to keep them down on the farm. What an exciting period this must have been for people that don't know about the Tin Pan Alley era. In New York City, what was that about? What was Tin Pan Alley? Well, it was just
2: a—it was a—an area in New York which was heavily concentrated um, with all the songwriting, all the music that was that was being made. So, um, you know, at different points in time, it was a—it was a street, it was a—it was a neighborhood, it was a building, even with the Brill Building. So, it really was just this—you this, know—ground zero for popular music at that time so you had all these different amazing artists you know from Irving Berlin to the Gershwins to um my grandfather and all the all the other artists that he worked with um so my grandfather was tapped by Irving Berlin to write for him um and he wrote Mammy and a few other songs for for Irving Berlin for for um different projects that berlin was on and then finally you know he he struck out on his own and wrote all those standards that you're talking about some of them were actually just you know singles or, or you know music that went out on its own but it eventually evolved into music
1: for plays for films and um and so forth so but this was really the birth of pop music and sing-alongs, and what are we talking about? The 30s, the 1930s. Early. Oh yeah,
2: this is the teens, actually. Yeah, I think so. My grandfather was born in in 93, 1893, and I think in his late teens he started working professionally. Um, so yeah, that that puts it closer to the
1: you know the early early teens. But in the 1800s and before, there really was no media, so there wasn't really... I mean, people would buy uh, sheet music if you had a piano. You'd buy sheet music uh, because there were no records. Uh, and and so the sing-along was sort of a 20th century phenomenon, wasn't it? Completely, yeah. And, uh, and, those, and also in terms of um, radio...
2: So I, I'm actually a little unclear on when different stages of that popped but you know we've got my mom she harvested a lot of stuff or just just kept a lot of stuff that my grandfather had so we've got you know 78s and you know boxes of 78s um going all the way back to pretty much probably day one i mean edison invented the phonograph earlier than that but you know when that translated into a you know a household thing or even a dance hall thing Probably
1: early teens. Okay, so let's jump ahead to you again. So you're skiing in Mammoth, you're surfing in Venice, you're growing up in Los Angeles. As a teenager, uh, what kind of music did you really uh, love? What spoke to you on the dial? So at that point, it was...
2: Um, it's funny, actually, cause the, the, because I was in, a, in two different places. You know, One was Mammoth, one was L.A., they had a completely different soundtrack. You know, Mammoth was... It was a little country town. Um, not... No stoplights in town. Uh, and very, very few artists sort of came, came into the forest. So that was sort of like Boston. And Boss Gags and Fleetwood Mac, um, Kiss. Um, and in L.A., where I had a, you know, that sort of my, the other half of my life, you know, you had Black Sabbath and uh, Led Zeppelin and um, God, even like, well, the Stones, obviously. Beatles were always in the, in the soundtrack somewhere. I felt like even at that point, it was a little poppy for my taste, but... As I've gone on in time, it's just like, holy sh! what genius, what just monumental genius that bad had. I'm just, I'm still astonished, like, on the daily, basically, by them.
1: Well, I remember, uh, I'm a little older than you, and the Beatles and the Stones sort of bracketed. The Beatles were the, the good guys, the pretty boys, the Stones were the bad guys, you know? Yeah. And, um... I think that was deliberate positioning, actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, by those two. They, they they knew what they were up to. But um, then the, the punk scene uh, came out of that, and uh, the, there's so much to talk about here. Again, I'm trying to get a feel for when you were skiing or surfing or skateboarding, uh, I know you were influenced by those Warren... Uh, what, what were they called? Warren Miller films? Warren Miller, yeah. And Bruce Brown. Yeah, so what was, was the soundtrack you had in your head when you would ski down the slope or catch a big wave?
2: Pretty pretty rock-driven. Uh, it's funny, like, you know, <laughs> Kiss and Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones were probably the big ones. At, at that point, um, even though there was a lot of other stuff that was happening... In other parts of the country, I mean, because if you look at it time-wise, Iggy Pop, Velvet Underground, like all those bands I came to love, uh, a little later, those were all happening at the same time. The Ramones, right? So, but that didn't make it into my consciousness actually till I came down back down to L.A. for good, which was in the sort of late late '77. So, but those guys had already been at work. Um, and then at that point, geez, just the, the, the revolution <laughs> that was, that was like sort of like the post sixties revolution. It just felt like it really got in a fast lane and, and LA just exploded with a, an amazing array of, of music in, in the underground scene.
1: It wasn't long after that, that MTV occurred and, um, Out of that came a demand for music videos. A band had to have a a record with a strong single or two, and they had to have a video. And how did you take all these interests that you had and channel them into producing rock videos for MTV and promotion and for aspiring videographers (laughs) or film directors who are listening? How'd you make that transition? How'd you get started in that?
2: You know, the, the, the future wasn't certain with a lot of that stuff. I mean, MTV was popping, so a lot of, it definitely was on the radar for a lot of people. It wasn't on mine, because I was really more interested in making films. Like, I had gone to film school expecting to be the next Warren Miller or the next Bruce Brown. And because of a, a, a technical error at the lab when a film when all my film came back black i had to basically i had a few days to to rescue what was uh sure to be an f (laughs) in the class because my journey down to mexico had come back like every single frame was black they they had the film had been exposed so i just pivoted right away to like okay, I've got to go to a story, I've got to create something because the film's, the, uh, you know, the, the, my project is due, the surf's flat and I have no idea actually how to rescue that other than to create a story, shoot a story, edit it real quick and then, you know, get it into class on time. So that was just a complete uh, um, sort of stroke of fate that walked me away from action sports into story, experimental film, narrative film, like all those sort of different iterations of film. So I was still on that path to just like I wanna I want to make films, you know, big films that, you know, that are in theaters. And meanwhile all this other stuff with MTV was was going on. But I had known a lot of bands just personally you know, been fans of them, had the opportunity to meet them. And I was working with Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, who was like my favorite Sonic Youth songs were sort of her speak sing songs. And we did a sh- uh, short segment for one of the films that I did, which was based on one of her songs. So the band saw it. this is like this is part of a whole feature that I was like uh, 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 I had a patron of the arts, basically support me after graduating from college but just because she liked the student film that I did and she's like I'll give you money to do a, you know, a featurette so Kim was in that the band saw what we did together and they said hey that would make a pretty cool music video what if you just put there was like 10 seconds or so of black in the middle of it deliberately um, where a, a train went into a tunnel and we were sort of in the tunnel for you know 10 or 15 seconds what if we put a uh, so an image of the band playing live in that slot and i said yeah we could we could do that so they handed me a vhs which is like crinkled tape you know there's it's folded it's static it's you can barely see them because it's shot in vhs from the back of the of the of the house and they loved it they sent it to mtv and all of a sudden it became a closet classic and all the music at that point on MTV was like it was relegated to two hours on Sunday night, which was this show they had called 120 Minutes. So all the underground bands that that I loved and and even knew, um, that's where they ended up in the MTV universe. Everything else was big hair, pop, uh, you know, just like the corporate rock, basically, right? It was it was uh, that was that universe, and that was like in a sense to me that was the villain like everything that they had in mainstream programming was like I was, I was young and an idiot but I was also just like violently opposed to to all that way of doing things right? Corporate film corporate rock you know all that stuff so anyway that basically just like the film project that ended up being black that walked me into a different type of filmmaking This experience sort of walked me into a different format uh, of working in, and so I just went
1: with that. (laughs) We had the same issue in radio, of course. Uh, I came out of underground radio in the late 60s, and uh, we pulled our own tunes, put together sets of music, did themes and uh, crazy things, like playing entire sides of albums, and and little by little, a corporation sees a good thing, but um, they regiment it. They, they bastardize it, you know. they Next thing I know, we're pulling three-by-five cards out of a box, you know, and just went downhill from there. I know you've done some TV. You did a miniseries for ABC, and uh, in fact, you directed Brian Cranston in, in Fallen, and um, you did The Visitor the the movies that I want to talk about, they need to take a break. But I want to talk about your EDC movie, also um, the DJ AM movie, as I am Life and Times of DJ AM. Kevin, you got a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Nobody gets a hundred percent. My wife reminded me the the Wizard of Oz did not get a hundred percent on RT, and. Um, I know you admire DJ AM a lot. He was a remarkable guy. in the Jones movie, uh, Jones had bad reputation, which is uh, your most recent film. I just loved the feeling of that. Again, I was on the strip at K West in the late 70s. And I remember the strip in the late 70s. And the energy of that is captured in your film very much, as well as the whole story of uh, Joan's career. So let's touch on that a little bit right after this short break. Kevin Kurslake is our guest. We're talking about rock and roll and music in general. We're talking about media, uh, film, photography, and on the other side, we're going to talk a little bit about the the consciousness or the level of awareness behind all of this. What we're we trying to do is media people, whatever our medium. DJ, talk show host, filmmaker, musician, rock star. What are we up to here? Let's find out with Kevin right after this short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7, KPFK in Los Angeles. We'll be right back.
0: We realize that times are definitely tough for so many right now and that you may have had to rethink what you can afford to give to your favorite nonprofit organizations. That's why we're so appreciative of those contributions that we actually do receive. It says a lot about how important KPFK is to you that you continue to voluntarily invest in this station. We thank you because you're helping to provide this essential community service to everyone in our region and beyond. You're helping to move the conversation forward. And if you're able to but haven't yet, Please make that investment in KPFK right now. Please go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online or call us at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you.
1: KFK on your radio, this is The Ageless Wisdom. I'm Michael Benner, here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. And uh, we're talking to Kevin Kerslake. He's an L.A. guy and a uh, real well-known filmmaker, not only for his rock films, but his feature films as well. Let's talk a little about the uh, DJ AM film. And, uh, well, again, these three, all of these three, I think, are remarkable. You did, let's start with EDC, actually. How'd you happen to put that thing together? So I had been doing. Actually, I did a film on EDC in, in the year two thousand,
2: where um, right before the rave act happened, and in, in, in the late nineties, you know, around two thousand, the the whole rave scene, the EDM scene, had really started to 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 take a step into, into the mainstream, you know, up, up from the underground, but the rave act. Sort of put it back in its hole, and in 2007, I was tapped by uh, Insomniac Events, uh, Big Cheese Pasquale Rotella, to do to film all their events. So EDC at that point was, um, you know, we probably got around 30,000 people a year. Um, in 2007, they actually booked the Coliseum. So every year after that, attendance doubled. And then finally, they they did a um, two day event, and finally a three day event, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, um, and there was over a hundred thousand plus each each day. So these were, <laughs> from an anthropological perspective, um, very interesting phenomena that were occurring. It and was
1: I- amazing. In fact. Uh, I remember it's probably ten years ago now, uh, when your movie first screened in Hollywood, they nearly started a riot. They had to shut <laughs> the streets down, didn't they?
2: They did. We, it was an invite-only premiere, so and at the at the Man's Chinese Theater, which you know I, I think the attendance is like eleven hundred. So invite-only, and I had Cascade, who was one of the stars of the movie. Um, he was just driving around in a flatbed. Uh, I was going to sh- sh- stop at the at the curb, welcome everybody to the event. But the night before, unbeknownst to all of us, he had tweeted out to his hundred thousand followers. Hey, block party on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> so, you know, fifteen twenty thousand 20,000 people showed up and there's no place to hold them. So they're spilling off the sidewalk into the street and they're dancing in the street. And I've got all the insomniac circus performers and acrobats like they're all there. It's like it's a huge party, but it's. Right in the middle of rush hour traffic. So, you know, the LA, LAPD called out the riot Squad. So they showed up. They were shooting people with rubber bullets and sandbags. Women who were show, showing up in, like, evening gowns with heels were, one of them Got a, was in a chokehold. Um, she couldn't, you know, her feet weren't even touching the ground. And uh, it was total mayhem. So, um, yeah, we lost <laughs> 90% of our theaters actually were, uh, they pulled cause we weren't even out. That was just the premiere. The next, the next night we were supposed to be in 600 theaters across the, across the nation. And, um, 90% of our theaters were lost. Um, so it just ended up being catastrophic on a, on a, from a business standpoint, but it was pretty amazing experience.
1: Well, it's so wrong given that uh, EDC concerts were among the gentlest and most fun-loving incident-free events in, you know, contemporary music. There were no mosh pits. There was no violence. Uh, Those shows were, I mean, the cops would end up joining, the security people would join in. (laughs) Yeah, we have interviews
2: actually in in that film with some of the, Top dogs at LAPD, and they were just they expressed nothing but love for that whole scene. I think that one thing that well, there are two things I think that they were that they found alarming. One was, you know, drug use, and there were occasional deaths at those events, um, because people were just messing with stuff, not you know, and and and, and they ended up just on the wrong side of the of, of the experience, and those were, you know, tragic and you know, terribly unfortunate. And the other thing I think was, you know, this was, was a building community. Um, I think even probably more concentrated than what you saw with, with rock and even hip hop when they were, when they were popping, that there was a very cohesive community and parts of it were interested in elevated consciousness and, um, and I think uh, when, you, when the cops and you know the authorities start to see concentrations and numbers uh, like that, they start to feel like they're losing control.
1: We keep saying EDC, I should mention that uh, for those who don't know, that is a reference to the electric Daisy Carnival. And um, you know up until this point, or a little before it, a DJ was somebody who played records on the radio. And then DJ took on a whole different meaning, and so it is with your uh, the film we mentioned before that gets 100 percent on RT. Uh, the life and times of DJ AM. How'd you come to know him and, and get that footage and do that film?
2: He he um, was uh, uh, you know really a really rising star in that world, and and everything that he had a number of firsts on his under his belt. Uh, he was the first DJ to. Um, play the super bowl to um you know play the mtv awards to make a million dollars sign a million dollar contract and then sign a two million dollar contract and so forth and and he had a you know sponsored by nike and all these things but i think that what's really astonishing about him was that he he had he had he had a tough upbringing um he didn't have any connections in the music world so he really cut his own path um he had a razor sharp wit and you know his mind worked at lightning speed and um and all of this fueled a very very dense sort of dj experience um you know, rapid fire um you know it wasn't like sort of put the needle on the on the record and you know come back three minutes later and and then and then do your thing like he was changing things up every five or ten seconds and and, and um it was, it was it was quite a quite an experience and he had a really lovely soul he had some addiction problems that he that he conquered, and he really became the poster boy for recovery and, um, and helped a ton of people um, in that regard. And then in 19, um, 1988, he, he was in a plane crash with Travis Barker and four other people, and Travis and A.M. were the only survivors. And the trauma... Uncorked all of the demons that he had really sort of wrestled to the ground, and within he, within a year of that, he he was dead from
1: overdose. He went back to using.
2: He went back to using. I mean, trauma opens that door again for yeah. for, for people in that world. But yeah. I had I had shot his first show back, um, which after the plane crash, which was hard Halloween. And then, or Hard Haunted Mansion. And then, um, and then I also shot him playing at EDC the following June. So I had footage of that, of both those shows, pretty extensive footage. Because I was doing, I mean, some of the shows that I was shooting, there were like 50 or 60 cameras on, uh, at EDC. So that, you know, we had incredible coverage over, over, the, over five stages. But um, the one thing that actually compelled me to make that film in addition to, to just him being a pretty amazing subject, is that I had lost a lot of friends in the music world. Um, as you know, I'd, I'd worked with Kurt. Um, I can't remember actually if Scott Weiland actually had died before this or not. But uh, a lot of other musicians who never... They didn't end up on the right side of fame and, and fortune and addiction, so, and my feelings, like this story keeps happening. Even people I don't know, Michael Jackson, you know, all these, all these different um, incredible artists, and and it's like, why this story keeps happening? And nobody's doing the the deep dive on, you know, what these what of all the circumstances that are at play on a psyche like this, a vulnerable psyche, um, and and so. When the family asked me to make the film, I just said, "Yeah, it's I I, I'd love to make the film." After some hedging and hemming and hawing, because I didn't want to be (laughs) controlled by you know a family story, they gave me Final Cut, and it was also because I just said, "We need to tell the whole story." Like that's why this film is going to be important beyond just A.M. himself, is just the fact that it's truthful about all these different circumstances. So anyway, we agreed on all that, and, and they said that's the film that needs to be made, and, and so off, off we went.
1: Well, I think that something is very different about the DJ A.M. film you did, and uh, the Joan Jett film as well, Bad Reputation, as opposed to EDC. All three have an incredible energy. In fact, I must say the editing on the DJ AM thing is incredible because it really captures his energy. Uh, So does the Joan Jett movie. But in the DJ AM and Joan Jett movie, we see the humanity, the human side of these rock stars coming forward. We get a sense of the lifestyle, how frenetic it is. Um, And as exciting as it can be, it's also traumatic you know, life on the road. And uh, there's a lot of money involved and a lot of opportunity and a lot of hangers-on. And um, again, like I said, it's exciting, but it, it's also at the same time uh, a horror show uh, that I think you capture this energy very well in these films. And again, I want to talk a little about Bad Reputation, the Joan Jett film you did most recently, But let's go to this idea of consciousness and your consciousness as a filmmaker and the people you've worked with. I mean, you've worked with Nirvana, The Rolling Stones, Stone Temple Pilots, Green Day, so many bands that we know. So you know these guys, these men and women. Why do they do what they do? Why are we doing what we're doing in media for the most part?
2: I I think what's really common... uh, 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 Amongst all the various artists that I've worked with and that sort of that I'm drawn to is just, you know, making music is as essential as as, you know, eating and breathing and sleeping. You know, it's just something that they it's it's a biological necessity. And uh and I think that the purity of that and the will to bring that to the world as a gift, as a weapon, as a as a you know something to share i think that the 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 nobility of it as well as the the you know the the fortitude behind it is is really pretty remarkable and it's like you know you, you sometimes it's something that you witness and but when you're making films it's also something you really want to bring to the light and uh and make part of the story because it is part of the story i mean it's it's just <laughs> the endurance needed to to uh you know to bring
1: something to light is is um it's awesome and let me say that's a curious play on words bring to light you know that really is a nice pun because we're talking about not just the light and shadow of film but or photography but uh, you know enlightenment or the sense of being an illumined being I've always been struck by the way intuition unlike logic, illumines the inside of your head. It really, it's like one minute you don't understand, you're stumbling around in the shadows, and the next minute this light comes on, it's like the archetype of the light bulb popping on, right? Or it may be the dawn of an idea. Sometimes you're thunderstruck. (laughs) But it's always an enlightening experience, and that's what film is. It's a, and, and and also painting for that matter it's a it's a play of light and shadow isn't it It is. It's funny because my
2: you know one of the things that, that drew me to film and even though I've played you know in garage bands you know that never <laughs> that never did see the light of day but were always amazing experiences just in terms of you know endless jam sessions and 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 just you know fun in the garage with a bunch of friends but early on once I once I really plugged into the transcendent nature of music um, you know sometimes helped by you know whatever drugs were floating around <laughs> in in my youth um, I think that the 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 power of music was really reinforced again and again and again with me and I think you know if I don't think even making music was an option at that point. So film was really the tool that I lunged for, and I, it was always like, "How do you make film, or you know, how do you make even photography sing like music?" M- music was always the gold standard in terms of whatever medium I was playing with. How can you, how can you create the feeling that music gave me? Right. That was. That was. It's always in the. Picture still like how do I make edits sing? How do you make you know whether it's rhythms or structures? I was very interested into in in the in in mathematical edits uh, and structuralism, um, which has a um, share some DNA with minimalism in terms of like loops and and that sort of the idea of transcendence and you know getting into this hypnotic trance of. You know whatever you're you're watching or listening to has a way of transporting you just locking you into this sort of zone and transporting you you know to 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 whatever realm basically you know it wants to you know there are there are various genres that have the capacity to do that obviously jazz had it in a more freeform way it didn't have the rigor of um you know Structures that I was really drawn to, but it's still, I f- still felt like, you know, Sun and and, you know, music like that, that had, you know, the ability to really transport you. And there are certain bands or even songs within the rock genre that have the ability to c- sort of create that trance. EDM and minimalism probably focused that more than any other examples into that sort of trance-like
1: transcendence, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I think you're hitting on exactly what I was looking for. Uh, The term I might use, given the work that I do, is altered state. And if you allow music... I (laughs) I used to do an exercise in my class where I would have them listen to music for three minutes, usually some Baroque piece without lyrics and uh, some classical thing. And then after the three minutes, I'd say, so what were you thinking about during that? And everybody volunteered. I was thinking about this and that and the other thing. And then I would say, well, why were you thinking? I asked you to listen to the music. And then we did it again. And the experience was very different. To allow music to have its way with you, to allow yourself to be swept away you use the word transcendent, you use the word trance and hypnosis. It's in these altered states that we begin to understand and develop a level of awareness, even if it's just jumping up and down and shaking your body because dancing feels good. Why do we dance? Because it feels good. Why does a little kid dance? Even when there's no music playing, (laughs) they they just jump up and down Dance like nobody's watching, as they say, and because it feels good, it creates an altered state of expanded awareness. How does that strike you? Right. On point.
2: Yeah, I think um, if you can strip that experience of words, for the most part, you know, you're really in a realm of, of, of rhythm and images, um, imagination, and um, you're dropped into this current. <laughs> that takes you and and the ability to just go with that to let go and and it's it's in the self in the sense sort of you know taking the self-direction out of it and uh letting yourself be carried away i think is a big it's a it was a huge i mean it's still sort of the the ideal state i think when you're listening to music you know it's
1: it's um well, that's the place you want to get to, you know. We have all these other distractions. Yeah, that's why a lot of people like headphones, I think, or earbuds. is that, uh, It's a way of isolating you from the crazy world to take you inside to the whole interior experience of listening to music. I've always thought it odd that fundamentalist religious people, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Jews, Uh, Even in the East, you know, strict Buddhists say music is bad. (laughs) And I say, are you kidding? Music is love. Heaven is filled with music. Why do you think angels have harps? (laughs) (laughs) I've always found that idea of... uh, I guess they find dancing too carnal or something, you know. Too uh, of the body.
2: Well, yeah, and anything that is you know, filled with joy is suspect, <laughs> right? It's so. got to be bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> touch on, uh, we just got a couple of minutes. I want to touch on this great Joan Jett documentary. It's not really a documentary, but it is in a way. Uh, how did that come about? How did you get together with Joan to do this? I had done a, vi- a video for Joan a few years before we actually hooked up on the
2: film. Um, but and she was great to work with. I loved her team. Obviously, just like there's nothing you can't love about her, uh, you know, it, it's uh, so they had um, taken a stab at doing a doc and um, they just compiled a bunch of footage and they just really didn't know how to put it together, you know, in the in, 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 in way. So they tapped my editor, Joe Marcus, who also cut the um, the AM doc and we worked a lot together and um and then he pulled me in uh to you know do interviews and 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 it sort of graduated to to the film needing more direction and and that's where I came in in terms of you know what that's what directors do I guess (laughs) it's just they 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 give these projects direction and 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 so um I joined the team and um yeah, worked with her, it was amazing. Like everybody actually in that team, the Blackheart Records and you know her her writing partner, um, Kenny Laguna, um, just they're all just amazing people, just really, really solid folk. So I mean that's a story that especially at the time, it ended up being, you know, right around Me Too. The Me Too era, the dawn of the Me Too era. Yeah. So and she's like a you know feminist manifesto in the flesh. And, and, and uh, it was just like all the stars aligned, to
1: be honest. Well, she certainly epitomizes the authenticity. Um, how can I say the sincerity, the honesty, the integrity, the upfront, in-your-face, no BS attitude that I love about everything we've been talking about today. I think, just speaking for me, that's what rock and roll has always represented. You know, when you're a kid and nobody understands you, at least you've got your record player in your room. I'm dating myself, my my, <laughs> <laughs> my CD player, my iPhone, whatever. But uh, there's that great Brian Wilson tune that the Beach Boys recorded in my room. And uh, it's like pop music and rock and roll was my first, Affair is my first experience with politics and romance and everything. It was the freedom that I was looking for when I was a kid growing up in rural Michigan with no culture, just endless farms. So I love what you do. Um, I love the industry. I love everything about it. These movies are available, I suppose, on uh, Netflix still. What's the best way to see Bad Reputation or the DJ AM or EDC.
2: Yeah, right now the DJ AM doc is only available through Vimeo. We're actually doing an extended edit right now which will be out later in the year um, with all these create you know hundreds of hours of bonus footage. It's it's going to be pretty quite a package. <laughs> um, I think Joan Jet though the Bad Reputation uh, film is is you know the usual suspects: Amazon, iTunes, uh, Google Play. Um, don't know actually where it is in terms of streaming, but um, you can get it at, at uh, you know at the others at the other outlets. Do you know if Joan's still touring? That? Uh- oh yeah, yeah. She's 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 uh. Well, obviously COVID put the crimp on everything, but I think that she's she she might even be out on
1: the road right now. Yeah, I think she may be. Well, Kevin, uh, thank you for, for joining us today. This uh, has been a lot of fun, and when Doreen suggested that I do this kind of show, you, of course, were the first person we thought of, and I know you and her are working on a project to be announced, so we'll not say more about that. But <laughs> it's uh, uh, I, I love knowing you and uh, having an inside uh, exposure to your body of work, and I just want to thank you for being here and wish uh, wish you the best to you and your family, and maybe we can do it again sometime.
2: I would love that. I mean, I'd, Michael, you're you are a, a true sage, <laughs> and and I think uh, you know you've been a a source of great wisdom. I think in in uh, in my life, and I know Doreen's
1: life, and and uh, it's an honor to join you here. Oh, very kind. Thank you, buddy, Kevin Kurslake. I guess today in KPFK, we'll be back with more. Stay with us. This is KPFK in Los Angeles.
0: Hi, it's Carrie Harrison with Harrison's Reality Check, heard every Tuesday at 2 p.m. here on KPFK. Well, Pride Month has become more relevant in the past three years than it has been in the past 20. Massive policy changes are afoot, ranging from reversing Roe versus Wade and the endless civil rights throughout that will follow. Gay marriage will likely be in the crosshairs. Voting rights, already perilously dangling on the precipice, will further be blemished. And 61% of the human population, women, will see attempts to further reduce their range of motion. Well, gays like me are fighters and will fight for you and everyone else and everything else. So let's all give a nod to gay pride this month and stay united as one human family. Carrie Harrison here on KPFK. Tuesdays
1: at 2. Welcome back to the Ageless Wisdom with Michael Benner on KPFK. Once again, I want to thank Kevin Kerslake for being our guest today. What a great show. Thank you, Kevin. In the uh, remaining minutes, I want to talk about KPFK and fundraising, but I really need to put it in the context of uh, what's happened politically in the last couple of weeks. Two Supreme Court decisions... Stand out against uh, the background of the last, well, five or six years with uh, the previous president. The gun decision that forbids states from requiring people to have a reason to carry guns openly. So, Wild Wild West, everybody gets to have a gun. Take it anywhere, take it into church, take it into a bar. The only place I know that guns are not allowed is the NRA convention. And, of course, this unbelievable overturning of Roe versus Wade. Both assaults on civil rights. Both part of a push toward fascism. And I suppose uh, someone better versed in history than I... Could even go back to uh, the early days of World War II to stay out of the war in Europe because they really thought Hitler was a pretty good guy. And uh, Mussolini, too, for that matter, good capitalists and uh, strong anti communists. And so uh, the United States was late in getting into that, that war, World War II. So fascism has been with us. As long as racism has been with us, it's just rearing its ugly head of late. And uh, what an irony. So many of us, I include myself, I really thought that the administration of Barack Obama, his election and his re-election was evidence of a new day in America where perhaps we could finally put racism behind us. But instead, it triggered a round of nationalism, of white supremacy, of a fear of democracy. By an unholy alliance of extremely wealthy capitalists who like the idea of oligarchy. They like what's happening in Russia. And, oddly, at the other end of the spectrum, a, shall we say, uh, low-information voter. Uh, Our previous president called them the poorly educated. People who are acting out of fear and their nationalism is rooted in the fact that because of where they live, they don't encounter much diversity at all. Everybody's in in the so-called red states, the flyover states, and of course the South, given its history with slavery. They're just not exposed to a whole variety, a a cross-section of human beings. Everybody in the middle of the country looks pretty much like everybody else. And even if these people do not think of themselves as racists, they're familiar, very familiar with the benefits that go with being white. And they don't want to lose that. And Clarence Thomas, my God, the most corrupt of any Supreme Court justice in history who Participated through his wife in an attempt to overthrow our democracy. So make no mistake about it, fascism is at hand. And in the past, that was just a name that liberals and progressives threw around. They called us commies; we called them fascists. And I see the commercial news media even beginning to use the the term. You know, it took mainstream newspapers. broadcast media well over a year to use the word liar in referring to the then president. Liar is a word journalists learn in school not to use and racism is another word that you're told you do not use like the n-word you you as journalists never use these words but just as it took the media well over a year to say you know frankly Uh, this president is not just misleading you. It's not just that he's failing to tell you the whole truth. He's a liar. And they counted the lies. And it was like, what, after four years, 35,000 lies. (laughs) It's like half a dozen a day. I think in the same way, it's going to take a while. We're beginning to see it for the media to say, what's happening on the right has nothing to do with conservative politics. This is fascism. Fascism, you see, is not, you may know this, but let's be clear, it's not a form of government. It's a racist movement. To talk about fascism and racism is to be redundant. They go hand in hand. You see that with Hitler, you see it with Mussolini. You've seen it elsewhere. Wherever racism is encouraged and allowed to flourish, there is a push for authoritarianism. ...and an opposition to democracy and freedom. And I suppose we could say it's sort of a chicken and the egg. The opposite is true. Wherever there is fascism, a push for authoritarian government... In ...opposition to democracy, you'll find racism... ...particularly against people of color and Jews, the Jewish people. And I know it gets complicated if you're a binary thinker... ...you have to choose sides... You might be horrified by the excesses of the Israeli government. and You get to be. And that doesn't make you an anti-Semite. And now the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Why am I talking about this on the show about consciousness? And what does this have to do with KPFK and our need for you to support this radio station? The need for a radio station... That is progressive, radical, not afraid to offend people with the truth, has never been greater. Our need for you to support us has never been more imperative. This is community radio. You're listening now. You are a member of the community. This is your radio station. So what do you want to happen? Do you want to see this radio station grow and prosper or fall by the wayside? See its impact diminished. Support us. Would you help out? Keep this radio station not only on the air, but thriving, bringing you information, news, commentary, and entertainment too that you just won't get anyplace else. Would you pick up the phone right now and call 818 985 5735 818 985 KPFK and say, I want to make a contribution or a donation to KPFK of $100, $200, $250, in annual donation. Or ask about the Sustainer Circle where you can contribute $20, $25 a month, $10 a month, $15, you won't even miss it. Make that contribution every month painlessly. It'll be right there on your bank statement. Show it to your tax guy at the end of the year and support what supports you. KPFK.org. That's the fast, easy, slick way to do it. KPFK.org. You look for support KPFK in the banner. Make your donation today. You'll feel really good about it. You can be part of the solution. Thank you so very much. I want to thank my producer, Mark Brisky. Invite you to stay tuned for Carrie Harrison. Check out my free Sunday Zoom class at michaelbenner.com. And join us next week at 1 o'clock on Tuesday for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.